Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. Uh, We'll be in chapter 2 in just a few minutes. Uh, Dr. A.T. Pearson once said, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. Uh, One remarkable story that I came across of a united prayer movement that really led to a revival happened in the 1850s in New York City. It started uh, with one businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear. God broke his heart for the lost around him and so he, he saw the need and he felt inspired to start a prayer meeting uh, every Wednesday at 12 p.m. from 12 to 1. And he just invited other businessmen to come and join him in this midweek prayer gathering. And so the first meeting arrived at noon on September 23rd, 1857. At 12 p.m. he showed up to pray and nobody else showed up with him. I imagine he felt some level of failure. I imagine as a church planner, I can kind of resonate with the failure that he felt as it was just him there, but he remained. He said, I felt called to do this. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to pray. Well, about halfway through the first meeting at 1230 p.m., all of a sudden six other businessmen come walking into the room and they show up to pray with him. And so for half an hour, seven of them total prayed together. At the end of that meeting, they said, we commit to pray weekly uh, as, as a group, and we'll invite others to continue to join us. Well, at the, week two, 20 people showed up. By the end of uh, week three, there was 40 people there. And then something happened on October 10th, 1857. Anybody know? I wouldn't expect you to. The stock, the stock market crashed. People lost everything. And suddenly there was this desperation for God that increased in the lives of people. And so these prayer meetings that start out once a week with just businessmen went from once a week to daily, and it involved people from all different types of backgrounds. All Just people from all different walks of life started gathering to pray. And it was reported that 3,000 people were praying at this location at one time, that it was overflow, and that even people who did not identify as Christians were showing up because of the desperation in their lives for prayer. And six, within six months, there was more than 10,000 people gathering to pray in various locations all over Manhattan. This was a prayer meeting of desperation for God to show up in the lives of desperate, broken, and lost people. And get this, within one year, it is reported and estimated that over one million people had given their lives to Christ. Started with one man. And within one year, one million people have given their lives over to Christ. And so it all started with this ordinary, Jesus-loving businessman. He felt compelled to pray on behalf of what he saw around him in his city, in his culture, which illustrates this biblical truth, that God's greatest movements always come in response to normal people praying. Let me say that again. God's greatest movements have always come in response to normal people praying. Pointing to that truth is how Paul is going to continue this letter this week in 1 Timothy, in chapter 2, where he instructs us to pray for all people. Because as he told us last week, if you were with us, he said Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And so he's kind of building upon that idea. He's now instructing us now to pray for all people, because as we said, all people are 
sinners, at least until they come to Christ. And so our main idea this morning, uh, and I've got it on the next slide, I believe, is that we are to pray for all people because Christ desires their salvation. So if you walk away and you forget anything else I say, remember this, that pray for the salvation of all people because Christ desires their salvation. Which brings me to point number one, that we are to pray for all people. Let's look at verses one and two from 1 Timothy chapter two. It says, first of all, then... I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, Paul spent chapter 1 laying the groundwork for what he instructed us to do, which he started out with saying, guard the gospel. And then he went into celebrate the gospel. And then he told us to fight for the gospel. And so now he's starting chapter 2 by giving us what I just call a starting point for how does it, do we actually do all those things, Paul? He told us what to do, but now how do we actually do it? And so what he's going to do is he, he says, here's your starting point. And what does he tell us to do? Anybody? Pray. Okay, don't be afraid, afraid to answer. If it's a wrong answer, we'll just ask somebody else. He tells us to pray. In fact, he uses four different terms in this very opening verse. He says supplications. Supplications, if you're not familiar with that term, is simply petitioning for specific needs. Right? That's probably a lot of our prayers, petitioning for specific needs. He tells us, uh, and he uses the word prayers, right? It seems like, well, what, what does that mean? Praying for requests that are always present. Um, some commentators say that it's probably meaning praying for wisdom in those, right? So it's just life situations. God, give me wisdom in how I parent. Give me wisdom in how I work. God, give me wisdom in these decisions that I just have to make, which make up everyday life. Third is intercessions. These are prayers on behalf of someone else. That's a lot of our prayers. And then fourth is thanksgivings. Prayers of God, gratitude for God's grace in our lives. And so Paul is reminding us that we are desperate for God. And that the church is on a life-saving mission as we are surrounded by people who are in need of this message. Just like Jeremiah Lanfair was surrounded by people who needed this message of salvation. And so once again, if you're with us last week or if you missed it, you can go back and, and listen or read. Paul told us why Jesus came in verse 15 of chapter 1. He came to save sinners. And then Paul said, I am the foremost. I am the biggest of all of them and that he came to save sinners. And so what, what again is Paul exhorting us to do in this text this week? Pray. And see, prayer is the starting point. And prayer is the starting point for the salvation of others. And it's the easiest thing we can do. So listen to this. When you think about prayer, and there's studies that show that, that all people on some level actually pray. Now, like when they stub their toe, if they're not a Christ follower, they're like, you know, and they say something about all people on some level pray and believe in, in, in prayer. But the thing about it, as a Christian, it's the easiest thing that you can do. You don't have to leave your house to pray. There's no passport required. There is, you don't have to go to the airport right now. To gather with the church, which I believe we should do, we have to get out of our house. We have to wake up and, 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 and gather like we're doing now. But to pray, you can just pray at your house. You don't have to get dressed to pray. You don't even have to brush your teeth. Now, that's just a little bit gross, but God can't smell your breath. You don't even have to talk to other people. So all the introverts find they're like, I don't have to talk to anybody else. No, we're not even telling you have to go out. To, you, just have to, you just have to simply talk to God. And God is there and God is listening. This is what Paul is instructing Timothy to instruct the church to do, to pray. And so Paul is calling us to pray. And who do we pray for? What does it say? All people. All people. 
Now, you might hear that and think, how in the world do I pray for all people? Does that mean I've got to spend every single waking minute of every day just going through every person in my life, and then I see someone walking, I pray for them, and I pray for them, and I pray for them? Like, that's not what he's saying, because otherwise we literally would only pray. We would do nothing else in our lives, so it's impossible. But in the context of this letter, who he's originally writing to, you've got a church that's now made up of Jews and Gentiles. And if you know the history of Jews and Gentiles, they didn't exactly get along. They had some hatred for each other, and now they're going, man, what unites us is Jesus and so Paul's saying, you guys who, and here's what I imagine probably happened. I'm using some creative liberty here, but other, other letters they wrote to other churches, right? I imagine like if this was our church, it's made of Jews and Gentiles, we'd probably have the Jews over here and the Gentiles over here. And Paul's going, all right, everybody get up. Let's play musical chairs. Let's intermingle. But he's also saying, let's pray for one another. And so the implications for us as sojourn church is this. One is that we are to pray for one another. So look around the room or those who aren't here this morning and think, man, have I been praying for the other people at Sojourn? Because we all know that we have things going on in our lives. And if you don't know, maybe you can ask. And if it seems kind of personal, then just, man, I'm just going to pray for this person. And you know what encourages people? When you go to them, now don't do this if you didn't actually do this. But if for some reason you prayed for them this week or you felt compelled to pray for them, if you, you could send them a text and say this. Or you could say, hey, this week, I don't know if anything's going on in your life, but I just felt compelled to pray for you. Like that, I promise you, that will encourage the person that you say that to. The other thing is, second, is we're to pray for others in our lives. God puts you in a family for a reason. He puts you around your neighbors for a reason. He puts you near your coworkers for a reason. Pray for other people who just happen to be in your life. And then third, pray for the lost around us. Right? It's no secret that there are a lot of people who haven't embraced the message of Jesus and the way of Jesus. And so we are called to pray for those people. Next, Paul gives us a specific category of who we are to pray for. Look at verse 2. It says, for kings and all who are in high positions. So we are told, yes, to pray for all people. But included in those prayers, we are to pray for leaders in high positions. Now, this is actually really interesting, once again, when you look at the original context. Because Paul was writing under the reign of Nero. If you know anything about Nero, he's a Roman emperor who violently persecuted Christians in the first century. There would have been few, if any, Christian leaders at this time. Yet Paul is instructing the church to pray for leaders in high places. And so he says, pray for pagan leaders. Pray for the king that you suffer under. Pray for that leader that you don't agree with. Pray for the ruler that you don't approve of. For this is the will of God. So think about how this is relevant for, for, for us as Christians at Sojourn Church, that we are called to pray for our mayor. We're called to pray for our civil, our city council. We're called to pray for our governor. We're called to pray for our U.S. senators. We're called to pray for Vice President Harris. We're called to pray for President Biden. We're called to pray for our world leaders, especially ones with high global influence, and especially in areas where Christians are persecuted. You see, Paul doesn't instruct us and say, hey, Pray for those in high positions that you voted for. That would be easy. Pray for those in high positions that you agree with. He doesn't tell us that. He does, however, tell us what to pray for when we pray for these leaders. In the second part of verse 2, he says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. One goal of our praying is to pray for peace and peace amid persecution. In other words, we pray for our world leaders in a way that, that promotes peace 
It enables the church to flourish. It enables the church to do what it was called to do in all locations globally. Because those in authority, even those who are contrary to God's will and who don't want anything to do with Jesus and his church, can actually open doors and opportunities for the church to flourish. Now, to be clear, that can happen under persecution. And actually, some of the global movements right now that we can talk to you about are happening under persecution. But there's also something about the church and its freedom being able to flourish as well. Uh, Pax Romana, if you've heard of that, which literally means Roman peace. This is what allowed for the roads to be built and trade routes to be established that literally paved the way for the gospel to spread across the Roman Empire. Additionally, this is a reminder for us to pray for our brothers and sisters, even today. I watched a video yesterday. I was reminded of uh, persecuted Christians in the nation of India, a nation that's near and dear to my heart. And it was just this fresh reminder that we are to pray for our brothers and sisters who literally right now have to worship in either sometimes in secret or sometimes in hidden and underground places because of fear of being persecuted or that they are being persecuted on a regular basis, something that we don't experience. We are to pray for them because the reality is they are our brothers and sisters. They're part of our extended global family. And we should also pray for the salvation of the persecutors and do as what verse 4 will tell us here in a few minutes, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. That just as we looked at, like, there's hope for the people who are also persecuting the church. Remember who wrote this letter of the Apostle Paul, who was formerly a persecutor of the church. And so we don't hate the persecutors. We hate what they're doing and what they represent, but we pray for them that they too would go from persecutor to, to Jesus' follower. Early church father John Chrysostom pointed out it is much more difficult to hate someone when you're praying for them. When you pray for someone, it's hard to have hatred towards them. I've had people, I don't say I hated them, but people that I didn't necessarily care for in my life. Um, even other pastors, yes, that's a thing. But then I started to get, get together and pray. There's one individual in particular. I remember we started praying together, and I was like, I kind of like him. He's actually kind of a nice, nice guy. Like his stage presence was kind of weird, and there's just different reasons, and there's some theological differences, but as we started to pray together, I found that, man, I don't feel quite the same towards him. And so you may not get together with these people, but think about when you pray for someone, especially someone that you don't agree with, someone that you don't care for, how you actually respond less negatively towards them. And around there's so much negativity in our world and our lives that it can, be, it can be helpful to pray for some people in those situations, and that God would soften our hearts towards them, but then also that God would change their hearts in the process. And so Paul, first and foremost, before we do anything else, he says, pray. And pray for the spread of the gospel. David Platt says, the progress of the gospel in the world is dependent on the prayers of God's people in the church. See, salvation ultimately belongs to the Lord. Right? We sing songs about that. But for some reason, God has chosen to use our prayers. He's chosen to use the prayers of the people as part of the vehicle for accomplishing his will to save people. You know, and so in that sense, we, that's why I say the church is on an eternal life-saving mission. And the Bible is urging us literally to pray. And pray for the desire and the advancement of the gospel to all people in all places everywhere. People's salvation doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. But God is calling us to pray for the salvation of all people in all places. And so for Paul... He's told us, so far, he's told us whom to pray for, what to pray for, but what motivates us to pray in this way? Aside from just, okay, you're telling us to do this, but what's our motivation behind praying? Let's look at number two, which is motivation for praying for the salvation of all people. We'll pick up in verse three. 
And so Paul here is going to provide us with these motivations. And first, we pray because God desires all people to be saved. Verse 3 says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What I call evangelistic prayer for all people is rooted in the fact that it tells us God desires all people to be saved. And so as you begin to pray for all people, here's what you're actually doing. You're aligning your heart with God's heart. You're aligning your desires with God's desires for all people. Think about this in your own life. If you've given your life to Christ, you may not know this person, but I guarantee somebody in your life or someone who, who knew of you was praying for you and praying for your salvation. However, we need to be clear about what this does not mean. So we're to pray for all people. It tells us because God desires salvation of all people. But here's a couple things this does not mean. This does not mean that everyone will be saved. It's a hard truth. It's a hard reality. We call that universalism. And that is not what we adhere to at Sojourn Church. And that's not because Matt doesn't adhere to it. It's because the Bible itself does not adhere to that. Because it would not line up with the entirety of Scripture. So I'm going to say that carefully. I'm going to say that lovingly and cautiously. Second, this does not mean that God's will has been overthrown. If God, if God desires this, then, then has man overthrown God's will of, of it happening? That we would falsely advocate that God is not in control of all things. Scripture teaches us that God is sovereign, a big theological word, that he is over all things. In Job 42, 2, it says and that God's plans will not be overthrown. Now, what this does mean is that God desires salvation for all people. And we should therefore pray for the salvation of all people. 2 Peter 3, 9 says the Lord is patient. Remember we talked about the patience of God last week? The Lord is patient, not desiring that any to perish. And so be encouraged, be reminded as you pray for lost people in your life that God loves them and cares for them more than you do. I think that's another encouraging reminder that we're about God here. God cares about these people in your life more than you do. God cares about the people in our city that have not submitted their lives to him more than, than we do collectively as a church. And so first we are called to pray because God desires all people to be saved. Second, we pray because God deserves the honor of all people. Look at verse 5. It says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It says, There is only one God, therefore God seeks all people be saved. What this means is there are not multiple gods, as some people might have you believe. Now, that, that may sound strange in our culture, but in other cultures of the world, I already mentioned India, they would believe, specifically Hindus, that there are multiple gods. There are not multiple gods, according to the God of Scripture. There are not multiple ways to God. That's probably more familiar to what we hear. There are not multiple ways to God. There's not, there, there's not multiple paths to have a relationship with God. What he tells us here is there's one God. There's only one God of the Bible. There's only one God of the universe. And there's only one way to have a relationship with that God. It's through Jesus. All must come to the one true God for the only one way to salvation. Right? That probably rubs like sandpaper on our culture. That would have us believe something, something very different. And I understand sometimes as a Christian, I'm talking about myself here. 
Sometimes as a Christian, it's easy to adhere to this and believe this for your salvation, but because we love and care for the people around us, we almost create like a, a dualistic kind of approach and go, well, I believe this and it's worked for me, Jesus, the Bible, amen, uh, Jesus, the church, the Bible, like, this works for me, but then like, as we interact with people in our lives that we love, we almost kind of are like, well, there's this dualistic thing to go, well, they're not saying Jesus, but they're talking about a higher power, or they're not saying Jesus, but they're talking about this and maybe this path. But once again, in a loving way, that's contrary to what Scripture teaches. This is what I, this is what I had to tell my friends when I lived in India, who were from different backgrounds and faiths. Specifically Hindus say, well, we'll add Jesus to it. Jesus sounds great, along with Krishna and Ganesh and all these other gods. And we'd say, I understand that would be really easy to do. You know, almost like I had to go to them in tears out of sincerity and say, but that's not what the Bible teaches. God, the Bible says he's a jealous God, that he's the only God. That's what it means when you, when you take up your cross and follow him, is giving away the other ways and to want to practice and, and follow the way of Jesus. And so our prayer, though, is that all people would have a way to respond to this message. Therefore, worship is the fuel of our world praying and the goal of the world praying. And so second, we pray because God deserves the honor of all people. And third, we pray because Christ died for the rescue of all people. Verse 6, it says, who gave, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Verse 5 and 6 uh, together are like the gospel in a nutshell. If you had to say, what's the guy? You'd kind of package it and say, here it is. You see that Jesus is uniquely God and uniquely man, what they call the, the God-man, and therefore he alone is unique in what he did. Jesus is the only one who, who offered himself as a sacrifice. The language there, he says he gave himself as a ransom by dying the death that we deserved. Ransom in Greek, what it wrote in the original language, what it refers to here is that he purchased someone else's release. And it describes Christ's kind of work as redemptive. This is where we get the idea, if you ever heard of this idea of substitutionary atonement from. That Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom by dying on behalf of sinners. And that this was the only way feasible and possible to bring mankind, every man, woman, child, that offer of salvation. And so hear this clearly, that God alone could pay this price. And God alone did pay this price. That says in Scripture that it is finished, it is done. That to the world salvation has come through Jesus. And so this is the obvious implications from our prayers brings us to point number three this morning. As we pray... We also proclaim. Look at verse 7. He says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling you the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So as we pray for all people, we also proclaim the gospel to all people. So he just told us that God desires the salvation of all people. Verse 4. He is worthy of their praise. Verse 5. That Christ died to rescue them, verse 6. And so we should begin to pray and to share with all people. Now, when you think about this idea of sharing, many would call this, uh, some would say proclaiming, preaching. Some of it would put under the banner of this word we call evangelism. And there's various ways that you can do evangelism, there are various methods and strategies. But as I've been thinking through evangelism here recently, here's how I would say we would define evangelism as sojourn. Intentional gospel conversations in relationships around tables. Intentional gospel conversations in relationships around 
tables. Here's the practical implications of that. We all have relationships already with people in our lives, people that we love and care for, and maybe some people that we don't love and care for. But remember, we're called to pray for those people too. And we're always meeting people, at least if you're an extrovert, you're always meeting people and always having conversations. So part of the implication would be, you know, the Great Commission says, go therefore. And so part of that is as you go, right? You're literally going. You wake up and you go out of your house, most of us. Some of us are remote, but you eventually leave to go to the grocery store. Like as you go, right? And you interact and you meet with people. And so it's being intentional in those conversations, in those relationships, and what I call your norms and your networks. Great place to start. I think people hear this, this word evangelism and they, oh no, I've got to come up with, go out and just like cold call. Like, no, like God's already put you in relationships with people. Like start there. And pray for those people. And yes, show them the gospel and how you live, right? Because I hear this a lot. Like, let's just like, amen. Show them the gospel and how we live, right? Our greatest apologetic, I've said this probably for three weeks now, is our love that we have for one another. When the world, watching world around us sees that, there's something to that, right? Amen. Let's show them the gospel and how we live. But at some point, you do actually have to proclaim the life-changing message of the hope and salvation offering Christ in Christ alone. At some point point because as followers of the way of jesus we too desire all people be saved right that should be a desire of ours right because if you're in christ you're like drinking from a like a a fresh uh well you know it's like man this is like this there's hope in this even on my bad days there's hope in this and so you should want to share that with others and so as followers of jesus as the following the way of jesus we desire people to be saved and experience the kingdom of god because that's what god desires that's what that's what god desires and wants and as we pray with confidence and proclaim with boldness, if you look at the end of your Bible, I don't have it on the screen, but Revelation 5, 8 through 10, it gives us a glimpse to where our mission is headed and everything Paul just told us. So, that, so that's the cool thing about the Bible. So you can flip all the way to the end and you can read it. And the good news is we come out on top. Like as the church, as Christians, like Jesus wins, right? There's no question. In the middle of it, we might go, I'm not sure about this. Is it doesn't seem like that. Um, as an encouragement, globally, the church of Jesus is exploding in really hard to reach places. It's only in Europe and in, in, in America and the United States that it seems like it's shrinking a little bit. So be encouraged. Globally, it's exploding. But read, if, if you read the end of this, here's what Paul, everything Paul just told us, it, here's a glimpse of what's going to come in the future. It says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is what God tells us that he desires in 1 Timothy 2.4. Therefore, we be confident in the mission because it tells us right there in verse 9. People from every tribe, every language, every people group, every nation will be surrounded around the throne of Jesus worshiping. Because one man, Jesus, paid the ultimate price. The Bible calls the ransom for, for the lost. So we can be confident in the mission. We may say, what good does it do? Right? There's some gaps. We don't fully know how it works. So I'm praying and God's accomplishing his will. But we get to the end. You go, man, God invite me to be part of this process. Because Jesus Christ is worthy of the praise of all people. 
And when we take the gospel to the ends of the earth, we're doing that for the glory of the king. Because we want Jesus to be praised. And it tells us here in Revelation that he will be praised. Amen? A small prayer movement in New York City started by one man, Jeremiah Lamphere. Saw over one million people in our country become followers of Jesus in a year's time. This got me thinking this week. What might happen again today? If a small group of people set aside a few minutes every day or even an hour a week to pray for God to show up for the lost around us in our city and for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit in our day, what might happen? Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.